Hello and welcome to the On Deck Circle. I'm Michael Levitt. With me today is Sam Frey. Sam, it's good to have you here. It's good to be here, Michael. How's it going? It's it's going. It's 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 doing pretty good. Um, uh, there's not too much going on with baseball, but uh, still still good to talk baseball nonetheless. Oh yeah, always good to talk baseball. Um, so, I mean, as you know, lockout's still continuing. Um, MLB actually made a new proposal to the Players Association on Saturday. What are your thoughts on that? I, you know, obviously the lockout has been sort of a arduous process for baseball fans. Everyone is itching to get back. And I still don't think the proposal is going to be... Um, is going to be up to the players' liking. Uh, the pre-arbitration bonus pool only was bumped up, I believe, to $15 million, and the players still wanted it like $100 million. Um, so I think that there's going to be quite a long way um, to go in terms of getting that gap closed. And it still sounds like the players on social media and speaking out are not happy with the the owners at all they are they they were not happy with the proposal of a federal mediator uh that was not brought with a lot of of that was brought with a lot of pushback from the players so while it's it's good that they're i guess meeting and making new proposals because you know all the baseball fans want to see this get done and they want to see the owners and the players meet a lot and, and, and get it done before hopefully March 1st, because if it's not March 1st, you're probably going to have a, at least a shortened season. And I, I don't know. It's, I, I started to lock out with sort of the idea that it, it was going to end sort of quickly and it, no one wanted the season to get shortened, but now I'm not so sure. I mean, they're both saying that they don't want the season to be shortened. Although, with how little progress they're making, it doesn't really seem like they're... I mean, the league has made some sort of concessions. They're, they've made some concessions. Um, they did withdraw the their proposal for teams who are over the competitive balance tax threshold to, um, to lose a uh, draft pick. But then they, they've sort of they've changed some of their proposals a bit. I mean and they're and they're giving in some. The players association is just they're just refusing to back down from what they initially wanted. With with few exceptions. I mean there's I think a couple smaller issues that they're they're just letting letting go of. But for the most part, I mean it's mostly it's mostly just sort of a stalemate at this point. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't really seem like it's going to get done soon. I mean, I was, when they were first started meeting again, they met a few times that one week. I was thinking that the, it might get done soon. And then, of course, a week couple weeks go by, and they're still at the same spot, basically. It, it doesn't really seem, doesn't really seem like they, they're, try, they're trying to get a deal done. It just doesn't seem like they're working quickly. Yeah, and and I think, you know, it's it sort of sprung up on us all that it's it the time is now because pitchers and catchers were supposed to report to spring training, I believe, yesterday, and 
that was sort of an eye opener for me to where this is already starting to to impact the spring training and the start of the season. And even if they say March first is the day they get it done, and that would be a two week, that would be like a three week spring training, and you know it would be cutting it close. And I I think a lot of players would. You know, if we see injury and stuff like that at the beginning of the season, you'd have a lot of players being very upset with the owners and saying, you know, they rush the season start to get the money and they they push this lockout on. And because they didn't agree to our proposal sooner, all these guys are getting injured because we didn't have enough time to prepare for the season. And, and there's I still think a good amount all... of free agents out there, too. Oh, yeah. Abs- I mean, you know... Even even if you're you're gonna have like the craziest week of free agency in the history of the sport if this when this ends because I mean obviously you got guys like Carlos Correa who haven't even who knows where they're gonna be next year yeah I mean there's a, there's a there's a lot of players who haven't signed um, I mean Nick Castellanos is still a free agent um, Clayton Kershaw for pitching side Carlos Rodon. I mean, there's some some good players out there, and it'll be sort of interesting if they don't, especially now that it is basically spring training, as soon as they get the, or almost, I mean, since they were, yeah, it is basically spring training since they were supposed to report yesterday. Um, But if they get a deal done, it's going to, like, immediately go into spring training. So then you have players who are signing with teams during spring training, which you don't have very many of in our, in a normal year. Of course, with the lockout, you're going to have more of that. And that could impact what teams are interested in players, too. I mean, if a player, if a team has a player get hurt with, within the first week and a player's still out there, they could suddenly just sign that guy. Right. Like, it, like if one team's shortstop gets hurt, they might... They probably wouldn't go for Correa just because of how much money he's owed. They may go for Trevor Story yeah. or someone like that. I and mean, Andrelton yeah. Simmons. I mean, some someone. It would probably be more of the lesser lesser guys who are on the shorter year contracts. I guess Kershaw and Rodon could be in that category. Right. If you need pitching depth, I mean, right. Those those guys are out there, and it's it's going to be interesting to see. We were talking a little bit about this earlier, but it's going to be interesting to see if they have to push back the season whether or not they keep the 162 games and just push the postseason back or if they just do a shortened season and play, say, 100 games and end up starting it in early June in that, in that scenario. I hope... I, I think they would do the latter because I don't think they're going to be wanting to have the bulk of their playoffs in, like, the thick of the NFL season. Um and, and in that Thanksgiving time, because it also it also like is going to be freezing cold in the in the World Series, and I think the sort of the goal of the late October finishes, it's sort of a brisk chill, like you know you're getting like the forty thirty degree nights, but it's not you know five degrees in some of these stadiums in in late November. Yeah, and I mean I guess it's sort of the the same right when the season's starting normally in like late March, early April. It can be 30, 40 degrees, which isn't, I mean, it's nothing like the 80, 90 degrees in the, in the thick of the season. But, um, I mean, it's, it's, there, there's just, 
there's a lot of ground to be made up at this point. Um, a lot of, I mean, both sides sort of have to make moves, sort of make concessions. I mean, they both have to be willing to do to to give in on some demands, knowing that they're not going to get everything they want. And I think that's what the fans want to see is the fans just want to see an effort being made by both sides to get the season started because when when I think that's where the real frustration comes in to the fans where it's like, well, you're not even trying to have a season on time. And that's the thing that we most want to have, just a, a season that starts on time and goes to schedule. And when you have the owners, you know, not willing to to make ends meet with the players, I think you've got a lot of fans that are like, come on now, like what are we doing here? Because the, the you're, we're supposed to have our team to watch on – March 31st or April 1st, whenever opening day is for your team. And the the owners aren't even, you know, attempting to, to make that happen for the fans. And it is frustrating because there are a lot of teams to be excited about. A lot of fan bases are really excited. To, there are, are slated to be a ton of top prospects called up this year. And a lot of teams had sort of the bitter taste in their mouth from last season, like the Blue Jays or the Mariners, first teams that come into my head. And they want to see another year development from their young core to see if they can get to the playoffs this year. And I think that is, I mean, that is one of the issues with, I mean, service time, which sort of deals with prospects being promoted, which actually, surprisingly, they seem, they seem to be closer on that, on that, um, aspect than most of the other core aspects of the deal. Um, MLB even proposed the possibility of teams earning draft picks for promoting top prospects, which is an an interesting wrinkle into the... I mean, because you you use the draft to take prospects, and then if you get draft picks for actually developing prospects, I mean, that could solve the service time issue. It just... It's... Seems sort sort of counterintuitive, I guess. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting because what what you don't want to see is teams prematurely calling up prospects and them hitting like you know one hundred, and because because sometimes like it does take it's different for different players. Some guys like Juan Soto are ready to go with two weeks in the minors, but some players are take more of that developmental curve and need more time to polish their swing and fix, you know, pitching mechanics. So I think what what fans don't want to see is their top prospects getting called up too soon and, and could be selling their development, but they also don't want to see, you know, their best prospects hitting 450 and AAA and you're like, I mean, why not even give them a chance because they could help the team right now. Yeah, and there's sort of that balance with that too. And you sort of have the team sort of has to weigh the pros and cons of both. Um it's definitely an issue where there's there's sort of a fine line, but it's very there's a very small line where it's actually it actually works perfectly. Be, just because it's so hard to tell I mean, you can tell when a player's sort of mastered AAA, but then if they come up to the majors and they're not necessarily ready for that, I mean, even if you give them some initial exposure and they don't do good, you can send them back down. I mean, that could actually end up being better for the 
players' development long term. So it, it it is sort of it's sort of hard to tell when when a prospect. I mean, a player could be doing great in AAA, but then you call them up to the majors, and it's just hard to tell if they're actually going to succeed until until they actually play a certain amount. I mean, enough games. Yeah, and but I also think that fans are going to be more okay with. If 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 their best prospect or one of their best prospects is killing it in the minors, they're going to be more okay with at least the team trying to experiment with them and see how it works. And if it doesn't, then it's you know we tried rather than just leaving them in the minors to to rake when they know they can do that. So I think you know fans are more okay with the trial and error than they are just the lack of wanting to bring up players because of service time or other reasons. Yeah. And that could be one of the, that could be one of the ways that this could work. I mean, it, because if you're, if the league is giving teams draft picks for successful top prospects, then, I mean, yeah, team's going to call them up earlier. They're not going to necessarily, they're not going to leave them in the minors as long. Maybe, maybe they leave them too short of a time in the minors, but I mean, at that point, it's almost – it could stunt the player's development, but it's – you're sort of getting a read on how they how they would do in the majors right then Yeah, and, rather and, than – Right, and like you said, yeah. you can always send them back to the minors and, and bring them up later if they're not – I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that it's like once you call a player up to the majors, you have to keep them there. Right. So I think, you know, if if – and I know they didn't do that with Jared Kelnick last year, but the Mariners called up Jared Kelnick and he sort of struggled. But I don't think any of the Mariners fans would have been like super mad if after 40 games of Jared Kelnick hitting, you know, a buck oh five or whatever he was hitting, mm-hmm. if they would have sent him back to the minors. I think they would have at least understood that. Right. And I mean, I think Joe Adele was sort of a similar situation when he came up and was awful in a short period of time. The th- I guess the difference there was just that the Angels didn't necessarily have anyone who was... I mean, he was basically just as good as the players they were using, or yeah. slightly worse. But, I mean, if if he... Their, their other guys weren't necessarily adding, adding... They were adding about the same amount as what Adele was doing, even though Adele wasn't doing good. Right. So I, part of that might depend on how what options the team has too. Yeah. I and and I think it's it like you said with Adele, it, his defense and it like it just wasn't ready. But if if you if you feel like and, and these teams know their their prospects the best. I mean if if they feel like, you know, it's gonna be a longer learning curve and it's better and they're better off just, you know, struggling in the majors for a while but eventually figuring it out. We don't know these guys. And the fans don't really know these guys as well as the prospects or the scouts and the, you know, manager that's been studying them for a long time now and having a relationship with them for a long time. So I think that what the players are getting to is just they want what's best for every player. And that is different. But I think that the general sort of want from the players is don't manipulate service time and get these guys that are just going into the majors get them paid more than what they're getting paid right now. Yeah, and and we'll talk a little bit more about the bonus pool aspect later. Um, Minimum salary they are trying to raise, but um, 
Another big news piece this week was Ryan Zimmerman retiring. Um, 37 years old, had been around for 16 seasons, all with the Nationals. Was actually their first pick the Nationals made after moving to Washington, D.C. Um, what, what are your... How, how good do you think he was during his career? I think he's going to be remembered as one of the best Nationals ever. Um, not only because of his play on the field, but I just think his leadership and the way he... He was he was on the Nationals his entire career, which is rare for a player to spend, you know, seventeen years with the same team and not. I mean, he struggled. You know, he was on some bad teams, but he never wavered, and he he always was a leader and hit that middle of the order, and and he he got the ring he deserved, and I think that that ring really cemented his legacy as an all time great National. And yeah, I think he's going to be, I mean, he was, people forget, I mean, in 2017, which is not that long ago, he was an all-star, was 20th in the MVP voting and hit 303 with a 358 on base and a 573 slugging and a 134 OPS plus. So, I mean, it wasn't like this guy was just, you know, hadn't hit over 205 years and was just this dinosaur. He was he was a very productive player pretty much his entire career. Obviously, last year, he still had a 104 OPS. I mean, he was still at least a little better than league average, or OPS plus, rather. He was at least a little better than league average. So I, I think he's the longevity. The he, he didn't get injured a ton. He was always there for the Nationals, and I think you know he's going to be remembered as a legend because of it. Yeah, I think like you said, I mean, his just his mark on the Nationals, I think. I mean, he just what he meant to the franchise. I mean, the fans loved him. Um, just being around as long as he was with their organization. I mean, and I think he still lives there, too, actually. Um, so, I mean, he's still going to be there. He might. I don't know if he, he it's possible he. Um, take some sort of job in their front office. I, I think yeah. that I could see that happening very, very likely. Um, but I mean, he holds he's he holds the franchise record for Nationals or Expos for games, hits, homers. Dull, I mean, just like seven different categories. He's their all-time leader. Um, yeah, I mean, he definitely that World Series ring was something he really did deserve. Honestly, yeah. Um, and not only that, I mean, he hit a home run in his first World Series plate appearance, which was also the first home run, World Series home run that the Nationals had. Very fitting that it was the first draft pick of the Nationals at the yes. first. Yeah. And yeah. I think that he, when every year in the, you know, the Super Bowl, the World Series, any professional sports final, we talk about what players were most happy for to get a ring. You know, Matthew Stafford with the Rams obviously comes to mind, Odell Beckham and Aaron Donald and all them. But I think back in 2019 when the Nationals won it, Ryan Zimmerman was a guy that was at the top of a lot of people's list as like, so happy for this guy. He deserves it. He's stuck it out with this team. And those those are the guys that the top of those lists that like you really, they're sort of one championship away from cementing legacy as an all-time all-time player for for the Nationals, and 
I'm very happy that he got that ring. And that game seven was so awesome. And, and just the nationals winning, it was, was a great story. And I'm, I'm pumped for Ryan that he's, you know, I hope he enjoys retirement. Uh, he definitely deserves it. He had an awesome career and his legacy is going to be a great guy off the field, a great player, a fantastic leader and a guy that I agree that he's going to stick around that franchise, whether it's in the front office, or whether he just, you know, goes to games and hangs out with the fans and spends time with his family, all that stuff. I'm just, I'm just very happy for the guy. Yeah, he definitely, he definitely deserves to have some time off after, after how, how hard he's worked the last 16, 17 years. Um, so now a little more serious news, or I guess it, yeah, it is more serious news. Um, Eric Kay, the formal, former Angels trainer, um, uh, was, is on trial for the death of Tyler Skaggs, a pitcher with the Angels who died, um, I think about a year ago, um, in, due to... I think it was, it was over the summer, I remember. It was probably the summer of 2019, maybe? I don't, that can be fact-checked, but... Um, yeah, no. Yeah, July of 19. Yeah, okay, right. yeah. Just terribly sad. I mean, I remember it's it's one of those things where you see the news and it's like you don't even believe right. that it's real. The, the same thing with guys like Jose Fernandez and Kobe. It's just like there's no way that that that's that, that just happened. And it's it's t- terribly sad. He, all by all accounts, was an awesome person and, and a good player as well. And, um. Yeah, it's just it's super sad, and it's the the details that have come out, um, whether it relates to Eric K. Guys, even on the team, like Matt Harvey saying that he received oxycodone from K. I just hope that Tyler's family feels like they get some sort of justice from all this. Definitely, I mean it's it's one of those where. It's just there's a lot. It seems like there's a lot more going on here than just this one, this one um, instance. I mean, it's I I actually would not be surprised if the league decided to do an investigation, like their own investigation into, um, like uh, oxycodone use or opioid use. I mean, whatever. I mean, drug use among players, almost more like a Mitchell report, but I think more. I think more sort of with the time I don't know how to phrase it. Um more more pro- professional, I guess. I mean, yeah. some people do sort of question the validity of the Mitchell report. So I think having sort of a a strict code I think would definitely help. And and from all accounts this seems like it was not just a Tyler Skaggs isolated incident. This was multiple players right. on the team that and it, and it was sort of a, it was an infiltration to the angels that sort of spread and became very toxic. And th- this, this K uh, was the communications director and, and, you know, it was said that he provided Skag with fentanyl that directly led to the death in the hotel room in 2019. Um, so like I said, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer or anything like that, and I'm not exactly sure what's going to come of this case, but it sounds like there was a lot more to this death than what people sort of originally thought. Yeah, and 
I think one of the problems, I mean, Matt Harvey said the only reason he testified was because he was given immunity. So, um, I mean, yeah, you can, giving immunity might not always be the best, the best thing to do, but I think in this case, at least to get someone, at least get the conversation going, I think was a good thing to yeah. do. Yeah. And I was honestly surprised that CJ Cron was testified. I mean, he's of the four players who testified um, ab- about or that they got drugs from K. He was the Cron was the only one of the four who is actually on with a major league organization right now. He's signed by the Rockies. He's had a great year this past year. Is presumably going to be their starting first baseman again. Yeah. I just at this point, I probably I would not be surprised if they ended up sus- if the league ended up suspending him for this. But but I think that shows, you know, how much of an issue it was and how, yeah. you know, passionate that Crone is about it, that he feels like even though he is an active player, he was still wanting to do this. And I think he, he I'm sure he felt like that it was the right thing to do and that I think that even putting his, you know, a suspension or even a termination from the league at risk shows how serious the situation was. Oh, definitely. I I was just more surprised at the fact that the league didn't necessarily know about it, I guess. Yeah. That y- you think they would have known something about, maybe not him, but some players using it. I mean, considering, I mean, if it is really as common as these players are saying it was, you would think they would, they would at least know something about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those where the full story isn't, out yet there's still presume there could be a lot I mean it seems like there's a lot more going on that we don't know about yet um but we are going to take a quick break and when we return we'll talk some more baseball we'll talk about um MLB's argument that minor league players should not be paid in spring training plus universal DH so, uh semi-official Stick around for more On Deck Circle after the break. Report a bear hug. Okay. I put out my campfire and Smokey Bear hugged me. So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Yeah, but he's just letting you know you did good. Bear hug from Smokey Bear. Status update. I'm going to let you go now. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. I'm Michael Imami. I'm Logan Franz. And I'm Patrick Herring. Join us each Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. on Mid-Missouri's hottest sports show, The Hot Corner, where we discuss all the latest sports stories in football, baseball, hockey, and more. He then proceeded to bring his dogs back to his cabin, where he then proceeded to pull out of the race. Not because of the health of his dogs, just because they just didn't want to do anything. Listen to us each and every Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. on KCOU 88.1 FM and KCOU.FM. You're really trying to be right. I'm just trying to throw numbers at the wall and hope they stick. You're seeing the guy who picked the loser score right two weeks in the wall. Yeah. Where are they going to find an elephant, Patrick? <laughs> yeah, like, I don't think there are just elephants roaming around Florida it would, on a regular it would, basis. Would it surprise you if there are elephants in Florida? I mean, I've been to Florida. It doesn't seem like a great place for elephants. Fire threatens everything in its path. When it threatens our nation and our communities, we respond. We bring the fight to the front line. 
The Army National Guard stands ready to face the dangers of Mother Nature and protect our homes and our neighbors. We will always be there when your community needs us the most. Discover more about all the ways you can serve part-time in your community by visiting NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Missouri Army National Guard. Aired by the Missouri Broadcasters Association at this station. Welcome back to On Deck Circle here on KCOU 88.1 FM. I'm Michael Levitt with Sam Frey. Sam, so the um, so the, the league in a federal court this week argued that minor league players should not be paid during spring training because they're, quote, considered trainees. How accurate do you think that that statement is? I I don't like the statement at all. Um, And I think it's sort of a microcosm of how the MLB looks at minor leaguers. Uh, I think it's sort of a a pullback of the curtain, per se. These are not trainees. These are professional baseball players. And they need to get paid in order to do their job. And... There was sort of the the viral video about the minor leaguer that, you know, said he made $11,000 in the year 2021. And it's – these guys are so they, – they need to be focusing on getting better at their craft and making the next level. But unfortunately, a lot of their time is, is focused on, you know, where am I going to stay and what food am I going to get and how can I eat healthy while still, you know, budgeting money and – Am I going to, you know, stay in an apartment, in a hotel, all this stuff that, that they shouldn't have to be worried about just because they're not getting paid a living wage. And they have some of the hardest jobs, the hardest grinds out there. And, and to be not compensated by these owners who paying these guys a decent amount would not break their bank. Like, let's be honest, these owners are billionaires that can shell out some money for minor leaguers to make sure that they're living somewhat comfortably. But but they want to penny pinch so hard they don't even want to do that. And it's it's frustrating. And, you know, the MLB argument they shouldn't be paid in spring training when they are working and, and, and putting in work during that time I think is absolutely telling of, of how the MLB views minor leaguers. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely... It does not reflect well on the league at all. Um, what MLB was trying to do was trying to get a lawsuit from eight years ago thrown out of court, which the lawsuit was about minor league compensation. But minor leaguers, I mean, even if they are being paid in spring training, let's say the same rate they're being paid in the regular season, they're still not being paid enough for them to actually have, have a good quality of life while doing their job. I mean, like you were saying, I mean, it's it's hard. It's when you're getting eleven thousand dollars a year, you can't really, you can't do much besides worry about that. And where am I going to work in the off season when there's no league going, when there's no baseball going on? How am I how am I going to be able to pay my bills? I mean, it, it's there's just there's a lot 
a lot more that the owners should be thinking about that they're just not. Yeah, and and it is it is frustrating to see this kind of treatment from minor leaguers, and it's 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 like we talked about in the first segment. It all circles back to the service time manipulation and and calling guys up potentially before they're ready. Now it all of it seems like all of baseball's structure is to screw minor leaguers, and it doesn't make sense considering they're the future of every organization. Why it's it's built to almost built to have them fail in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it really does. It sort of it probably honestly is going to lead to more, more tensions between players and owners. I mean, in the future, I mean, if they continue to not play minor leaguers, at some point there's just going to be no minor leaguers left, basically. Um, or I mean, team team players aren't going to want to. I mean, if you're drafted, you're not going to want to sign with the team knowing you're going to have to survive on that little money. I mean, for however long you're in the – I mean, some guys are in the minors most of their careers. I mean, there are players who sort of – they'll be in the minors five, six – I mean, especially if you're drafted out of high school. I mean, you you can be in the minors for – five, six years sometimes, I mean, before you even make it to the majors. Granted, I mean, some of these players get signing bonuses too, but, yeah. um, I mean, who, who knows how much that really adds when it's spread out over that much time. When especially, I mean, with, with, with so many, it's, it's, it's essentially favoritism because, you know, all these high picks are the ones getting the signing bonuses, and, and guys drafted after pretty much like the second or third round are not getting much in terms of the signing bonus at all, and it's... All these players that are on, you know, representing the players on the MLBPA, they all were minor leaguers, so they know firsthand right. how bad it is. And I think, you know, those memories and and stories they have to share are are a driving force in them trying to get justice for other minor leaguers like they were. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, in if you're if you're looking at the negotiate the. CBA negotiations between the league and the players, if you're looking at that as sort of, if you're trying to figure out who's who's doing a better job based on who's more willing to make concessions, then you would think the league is doing better. But then you look at this, and it just seems like everything they're trying, they want to get the season started on time so they can make more money. And it, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't it just does not it hurt I mean it hurt it's gonna hurt the owners. I mean at some point yeah. the player they're just gonna the players are gonna refuse to play unless they're given everything they really should be entitled to for the most part. Oh, yeah. Um as far I mean minor league players definitely. I but minor league players don't have the same say as major league players. So it, it it sort of creates a a little bit of a conundrum there. Yeah, I it's it's definitely a situation that should have been remedied a long time ago and needs to be remedied immediately because it isn't fair that these minor leaguers are are having to struggle like this. And I I hope that you know what comes of this lockout is is beneficial for the players, and I hope that includes minor leaguers as well. So, um, 
with just this afternoon, it was announced that Juan Soto turned down a huge extension from the Nationals. Uh, 13 years, $350 million. Do you think he should have turned that down? I think that if if him and his agent, Scott Boris, believe that it it was a de- he can do better than I think that then yes he should have because he's you know he's he's sort of betting on himself and betting that he can get even more money and I'm all for that I think that he deserves you know a huge contract and he's going to get one if he stays patient which is I think what he's doing and so yeah I mean if 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 he thinks that that's the best decision for him to turn down that contract I I'm all for it whether he. I don't. I don't think it's about you know not wanting to play for the Nationals. I think if the Nationals give him a better offer and an offer he thinks he deserves, then he'll take it. I think it's just about him wanting to maximize this contract because he's in such an he's in an advantageous spot because he's so young and already so good that right. he should be looking for a long term deal that is extremely lucrative and could be, you know, Mike Trout type money, and and even I think he deserves it. And he still has two years left on his contract, too. Um, and, I mean, with, with how good he's been, I can, easily, I can see him getting a lot more than $350 million. I can see yeah. him getting close to the $400 million, which, I mean, it's, it's kind of insane. But at the same time, when, when you're as young as he is and doing as great as he is, it, it really is a similar situation to Mike Trout. And, and like you said, if he gets unrestricted free agency at – 25 years old and already a top three player in the league there are going to be some owners that are going to give him a blank check and say write your amount and so I think you know not being hasty and taking the first contract he sees is is a smart idea so yeah I mean Juan Juan deserves a huge bag and I think he's going to get one oh yeah he he definitely will Assuming he keeps up this production, I mean, right. he's he's, he's going to get a lot of money. And, I mean, Scott Boris, too, is sort of no, – he's known for trying to get his players to free agency. So, he, I mean, it, it's not – I don't know if this if – if Boris influenced Soto or if Soto actually didn't want to take the money. But either way, I, I honestly think rejecting it is probably, was probably a good move for Soto. I mean – Right now, looking at everything he's done and everything that he could end up doing. I mean, obviously, yeah. if he gets hurt the next two years, he's, he's not going to get this much money necessarily. Right. Um, but, I mean, when, when, so, I mean, that is a risk he's taking, but I think at this point, it's, it's a, probably a good risk to take. Yeah, like, like you said, assuming he stays healthy and keeps up his production, which I have no reason to believe that he won't, considering right. he's been in the league for basically three years and finished top 10 in MVP voting all three years, or I guess three of the four years he's been in the league, there's no reason to think that he's going to slow down anytime soon. And, like, I yeah, I, I'm all for him, you know, testing his, his worth on the open market. And if he does that, I think... it it It's sort of... I sort of want to, you know... To see him stay in Washington because oh, yeah. if he goes like the Mets or the Yankees, the Dodgers, it's gonna be like the rich getting richer, which I don't love. But 
and I think he's a great. He likes Washington. I I f- seems like he does at least, and I, I think if I think Washington should should try their absolute best to keep him. Yeah, I mean, I think even if they have to pay him four hundred million, I think that's something they probably should do to to keep him around, just because of how how much better he makes their team. Right. But we are going to take another quick break here on on Deck Circle. Um, when we return, we'll talk um, our recurring segment this week in baseball history, and um, have a I have a good amount to cover there. So uh, stick around. We'll be back after the break. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hey, yeah, you listening right now to KCLU 8.1 FM. Here, check out this sneak peek of what to expect on Cup of Bro. So if you had to give it like a flavor profile, would you call it like a Tahiti sunrise or more like a San Francisco fog? Um, I would say it's almost like a San Francisco dusk. It's not just flavors. We got sports too. From Wisconsin, Tyler Hero, <laughs> um, the man, the myth, the legend. So join us Fridays at 11 a.m. All across the nation, we are here for our communities. We're doing our part to get supplies where it's needed in order to fight COVID-19 together. It feels good to be out there to assist our community. I would like our friends and family to know that your National Guardsmen are always ready and always there. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Missouri Army National Guard. Aired by the Missouri Broadcasters Association and this station. Welcome back to the On Deck Circle here on KCOU 88.1 FM. I'm Michael Levitt with Sam Frey. Sam, it's 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 good to have you here. Um, as as I was telling you before, um, we do have a recurring segment, which is this week in baseball history, where we go through some of the more some of the things that happened this past week in baseball. Um, that are either breakthroughs or some, something notable happening. Um, so I think the first one was in 1878, the catcher's mask was uh, patented. Um, that happened on February 12th, um, was submitted by Frederick W. Thayer, who was the captain of Harvard's baseball team at the time. Nice. That's, I mean, yeah, that's 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 big. The catcher's mask is... Prevented quite a few scary injuries, you know, I, oh, yeah. all the foul tips, the people getting hit by the bat. Um, yeah, that's that's and and it's interesting to see how the style of the mask has sort of evolved. To oh, where you yeah, had, like the two piece mask and now sort of the one piece, and which one catchers prefer is always interesting to look at. Yeah, you can do the next one if you want. All right, we have. 1911, the Phillies come up with the idea to wear the pinstripe jerseys. Now, obviously, more known as the Yankees, 
But the Phillies have some nice red pinstripes. Um, and this was actually before the Yankees started wearing pinstripes, right. too. And, and, that's, and that's kind of the funny thing that, like, people, when you think pinstripes, you think Yankees. But the Phillies have some some sharp-looking red pinstripe uniforms, oh, yeah. too, as well. Um, yeah, those are nice. And not many teams really wear them regularly, aside from the Phillies and the Yankees. Yeah, I think Dodgers might. Maybe, maybe. I don't even know if the Dodgers. Yeah. I, I feel like maybe the Padres have yeah, like I guess one Padres alternate do, yeah. uniform, but I feel like that just do not see many pinstripes. Yeah, that's sort of become like the Yankees, right? Not, I mean, not like official trademark, but like the one of the things to recognize their team, right? When you think pinstripes, you think Yankees. At least right. I do. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Um. So then in 1937, Connie Mack was interviewed in the first baseball TV interview, um, was interviewed by Boke Carter, who was one of the most famous journalists at the time, and the interview was a demonstration by Philco to display their new TV technology. But not many people actually saw the interview because the only audience was selected guests at the Philadelphia Cricket Club, which was only a few miles from the studio where the interview took place. Well, I'm sure that the distinguished people at the Cricket Club were happy they were a part of history. Oh, yeah. And Connie Mack at the time was one of the best managers in baseball, too. I mean, he, I mean even now you can say he's one of the best managers ever. Yeah. It's interesting to see how the sort of the state of the interview has evolved to where now you've got guys in the All Star game that are doing these in game interviews, right. and they've got managers that are interviewing in the middle of the game, which I am not for. I don't know what you're like. Yeah, I think whenever they do that and the All Star game stuff, like when they had Xander Bogarts while he was batting getting interviewed by A Rod, I was just like, stop, please, this is too much. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, but ba- I just batting it. seems a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, just because you want them to focus, and then like if they're swinging and it falls out or something. I mean, I get wearing a microphone while they're in the field is one thing. I mean, especially if it's I don't know, first baseman, like outfielder. I yeah. mean, someone who's not necessarily gonna. I guess outfielders do dive first. I mean, first baseman don't really dive, but. Um, ball is goes to the first baseman a lot more than the outfielder. So it, it's, I don't know, I feel like if you're wearing it in the field, it makes more sense. Yeah, I think if you're out in right field, like that's like the limit of where, because even at first base, you got a hard grounder, you got you to gotta scoop some. It's just, yeah. there's a lot more to focus on, I feel like, than when you're in the outfield, which there is, but in the all-star game, if you're playing out in the outfield in the all-star game, you're probably not going to be, risking injury and diving for oh, right. like diving over the fence, diving for balls that he would be in a regular season game. I think that might be like my limit. Even during the regular season when they do manager interviews, I still feel like they've got so much going on and they're trying to make decisions and, and watch their pitchers and their fielders and their hitters. It's just a I I think it's crossing a line. But maybe I'm just, you know, I'm 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 the fun police and and don't and that's why I, <laughs> I don't like it. But I I think it's a little much. You can uh, say the next one if you want. So we have 1957. The Georgia Senate approves a bill that bans black players from playing baseball with white players. Luckily, that was not the precedent that is currently today. Oh um, yeah, easily. I, I. So was it like just the Braves that couldn't? Actually, Georgia did not have a major league team at the time. Oh, okay. Surprising, yeah. Okay, because they, they were had, still in Brooklyn or 
Was that or Milwaukee? I guess Milwaukee. Was the yeah. yeah, or that. Yeah, um, they had a lot of minor league teams though, and so that sort of any minor league team couldn't play like a semi-pro African American team, or I mean something. I mean, yeah. they couldn't play against each other. The only exception to the bill was actually at religious gatherings. Um, I mean, because you had you might have people from different races there, so if they wanted to throw the ball around. Also of, also of note about this is that this was 10 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the majors. Right, yeah. So, the, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, like, you wouldn't think that this would happen that late. In, I mean, like, you would think this would, if you heard that this happened, you would think it was, like, 1910s, 20s. I mean, some, you wouldn't think that it was the 50s when this happened. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in 1971, Bill White became the first black play-by-play broadcaster in MLB history. Um, White was hired by, to work on the Yankees broadcasts uh, with Phil Rizzuto and Frank Messer, worked with them from 1971 to 1988, and then in 1989 became the National League pres- president uh, from 89 to 94 after Bart Giamatti became commissioner, was actually the highest-ranking African-American in professional sports at the time. Or, or up to that point, he was. Um, he was also a former player, um, was a first baseman with the Giants, Cardinals, and Phillies. And interestingly enough, he actually moved to left field for one season um, in the late 50s uh, so that Stan Musial could play first base. And then after that one season, they flipped the two of them back. So then White was at first and Musial was in left, which is where he ended up playing the rest of his career. No, it's it's crazy. It took that long, you oh, know, until yeah. seventy one for the first black play I play broadcaster. But obviously, Bill White's a legend of of the game, and and that's great that he was able to break that barrier and and set the precedent for for more to come. Uh, Two thousand one, we have Three Rivers Stadium that was torn down. Uh, Three Rivers Stadium, formerly in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, now the site of that is PNC Park, which. I have not been to, but I have heard amazing things yeah, about so PNC. I. I've um, heard it's a really nice stadium. But the the three rivers that it was named after in Pittsburgh, the Allegheny, the Monongahela, and the Ohio. Um, and that's obviously where now PNC – the PNC deserves it better than the Pirates. That stadium yeah. is, looks amazing, at least, on TV. And – I, the first memory of the of the PNC was that 2015, I think, wild card oh, yeah. game between the Reds and the Pirates, uh, where the Pirates won, and that crowd was so electric. So I want to see meaningful baseball at PNC Park, please. And that stadium was also where Roberto Clemente's 3,000th hit took place and where Mike Schmidt's 500th home run took place. So both notable accomplishments to happen at Three Rivers. Um then in 2002, MLB bought the Montreal Expos. Um, so their former owner, Jeffrey Loria, sold the Expos to the league for $120 million, um, and then bought the Marlins from John Henry, who now owns Boston, the Boston Red Sox. Um, and Loria bought the Marlins for $158.5 million. So the deal actually did not become official this week. It, it was, became official, I believe, a few days from now. Um, but the sale was actually approved th- during this week. I, whenever I think of the Expos, I think of that picture of Vlad uh, oh, Guerrero yeah. and Vlad Jr. Um, but I, 
it's interesting that now we've there's sort of been re reemerging talk about baseball in Montreal with the Rays. Oh yeah, potentially splitting their games between Montreal and Tampa, which I think would be a little bit of a da- disaster. But oh yeah, I think they actually canceled that. Play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would be interesting to see baseball in Montreal again, and if there if there was a baseball expansion, I think Montreal would be on the short list yeah i of, think they definitely of cities to to bring back baseball to i'd love to see another canadian team besides toronto yeah um so if if the mlb does end up expanding i think montreal would be an amazing amazing place for it we have 2016 henry mejia the first player to be permanently banned from baseball for the, his third failed drug test uh, so he has not played since 2016. He only played five years with the Mets and had a decent enough career, I guess, for a reliever. Yeah. Um, yet obviously, he was doing a lot of a lot of um, drugs and, and and illegal substances. But in 2013, he did have a two 2.3 ERA and. Um, in only 27 innings, but he was never really a high. He did have 93 innings in 2014 where he had a 3.6 ERA. So he was, you know, not your shutdown back of the bullpen guy, but he was solid. And, I mean, Mejia was also in the middle of serving a full-season suspension for a second failed drug test when he was suspended a third time. So then he had to serve that suspension and then wait a year once that was done to be reinstated, to apply for reinstatement, which he then did and was actually reinstated in July 2018, was still under contract with the Mets, pitched in the minors with them, but then after that season, they then released him. And I think he signed with Boston for 2019, but then hasn't, was in the minors for them, but then hasn't pitched since then. Yeah, and he's getting up there in age. He's 32 now, so I'm not sure... How many teams are going to take a chance on a 32-year-old reliever who hasn't pitched in the major since 2015? And yeah. He, and he only pitched seven innings in, 26, in 2015. Yeah, So <laughs> I would be surprised if we see uh, we see him back, back in a major league uniform. And then our last um, newsworthy event is um, in just two years ago, 2020, Mike Bolzinger filed a lawsuit against the Astros for stealing signs. Basically, he was... He filed a civil suit against them, accusing them of, quote, unfair business practices, negligence, and intentional interference with contractual and economic relations. So he basically, because he had an appearance during that season against the Astros where he gave up, he had a bad start, basically ended his career. Um, So he was suing them to get damages. Um, Court case was dismissed in March of 2021, then refiled it in May of 2021, and then dropped the lawsuit again in September 2021. So sort of a, a long process there, but ended up not even going to court. Yeah, that, that's that's too bad for Bolsinger. And I don't think that we're going to see really any other, anything else come of the Astros um, right. scandal. I think everything is sort of... The Manfred saying he wasn't going to take the World Series trophy, I think, was sort of the end of it. And all the players came out and gave their apologies. Some were more sincere than others. Um, but I, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of discord. I think this now it's basically deflate gate in terms of like yeah. how it's going to be referred to in just a past cheating scandal that 
you know, there aren't going to be actual, any actual repercussions from anymore. On that note, we do have to uh, wrap it up for this week, but we'll be back ne- next week for more on Deck Circle here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Sam, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Yeah, it definitely it definitely has uh, has been. Um, we'll be back next week for more on Deck Circle. See you next week. Hey, this is Brian and Mikey and Pat from Weezer. And you're listening to KCOU. 88.1 FM Columbia. Columbia. Columbia.